Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Shahida Mausi in a very special episode with a very special person, recorded live on July 11, 2022 in Cleveland, Ohio, at the NEVA 22 conference, put on by the National Independent Venue Association in what was our first live before an audience episode since January 2020 in the before times. Shahida Mausi has brought a sense of mission and advocacy to a life in culture and entertainment. In 1996, Shahida formed The Right Productions, which manages and operates the Aretha Franklin Amphitheater in the heart of downtown Detroit. This unique waterfront venue is the epicenter of live entertainment in the summer for metropolitan Detroiters. Shahida has produced and booked events for luminaries like Wynton Marsalis, Della Reese, Little Richard, Nina Simone, Herbie Hancock, Mary J. Blige, and countless, countless others. She also produced the largest event held during the historic visit of Nelson and Winnie Mandela to Detroit, when more than 50,000 people gathered in Tiger Stadium for a program featuring Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, a 2,000-voice choir, and an array of other artistic and political dignitaries. Shahida also played a central role in creating the African World Festival, which itself serves as the model for the National Black Arts Festival in Atlanta. Shahida is a current or past member of countless arts, cultural affairs, and community boards. She's the past vice chairperson of the Museum of African American History. And before entering the business world, Shahida spent a decade serving as director of the City of Detroit's Council of the Arts, a grant-making, producing, and advocacy agency. Frankly, I suspect I missed a few things in this well-lived life of service, but now I bring you Shahida Mausi. Hi, good morning. We're the opening act for Neva 22. Welcome to a special live episode of our podcast, Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and sponsored by Light. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier, and a little bit of housekeeping. We have over 100 episodes of our podcast with musicians, business and thought leaders, tech professionals, athletes, writers, journalists, lots of other people on our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. And after several live on Zoom recordings over the last two years, this is our first one back in front of a live audience since January 2020. And for me, it feels fitting, thank you, to mark that occasion here at Neva 22 with all of you. It only seems right that we do that with a group of live professionals. So with all that said, today the spotlight shines on our guest, Shahida Mausi. Please join me in welcoming Shahida Mausi. Thank you for joining me. That was a little embarrassing this morning. I, that was my goal. I figured if I embarrass you, I'd loosen you up, make you a little vulnerable. So. Done. Done. <laughs> so there are a lot of things that I want to get your perspective on and that I hope we could share with everybody. And I want to start a little bit at the beginning, though. I want to learn about your history and your family's history with the city of Detroit. Before we get to that, though, if I understand correctly, you have some family connection to Cleveland on your mom's side. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. Cleveland is another family home for, for me. My aunt and uncle were entrepreneurs here from the early days in the 30s and whatnot. They were property owners. Uh, they owned a, a, a nightclub, a bar, 
And um, yeah, so I've got family here. I've got family running for office here. Which office? Um, they're running for judge. Wow. Yeah, Judge Saffold. We hope to make it. So if you're voting in the uh, Cleveland district, there it is. <laughs> we are not subject to the equal time provisions. So yeah. uh, sorry if you're running against judge. And about Detroit. So when did your family roll up in Detroit? My family's been in Detroit since 1918. Wow. So, yeah, we've been there over 100 years and came there originally with my great-grandmother with three small children, and uh, she established us there, and it's been quite a, quite a journey in Detroit. One of the things that we also were involved with there was the Gotham Hotel, which was a, if you're familiar with Harlem and the Tr- Teresa Hotel, the Gotham was the equivalent in Detroit, fine dining, top flight service, but segregated. So that was something that my uncle owned with his partner. And yeah, Is it still standing? No, it was taken during open renewal. Okay. So there's another story, right? Because we're all talking about what happened to urban renewal tracks across the country and how they impacted black businesses and that promises were made, rebuilding never occurred. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm from outside of New Haven and very similar thing, just whole swaths of the city were sort of supposed to be bettered and remade and now this is just where the interstate runs through. Exactly. Yeah, and, and barren land on either side of it. What did your family do in Detroit? Sort of how did they make their way? Well, actually, both here and in Cleveland, my family was in the numbers business. Okay. And I can say that because it's an industry that got nationalized, right? It's now legal, and the state takes the profits, right? Once upon it's a called time, the lottery. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Once upon a time, it was illegal. And, and actually, my uncle here was in the numbers business when it was legal. It used to be legal before the 30s, and there was a, a revenue stamp that you purchased, and you pay taxes. And so really legal, not just sort of tolerated. It was a, it was it was a business. Yeah. So, was, so was marijuana back in the day. It was legal. You could prescribe it before it became illegal, and now it's illegal again. So, yeah, there's this nationalization process that goes on with industries. Yeah. yeah. Both designed to take money and empowerment out of the community? That's the effect that it's had, yes, because um, the numbers families were the people that provided scholarships and funding for businesses. They were the bankers in the community when there were no bankers serving our community. So, yeah, it did disempower the community when it became illegal. There was a book about 10 or 12 years ago I read about the history of the number. I think it might have been called The Numbers Game or something like that. It primarily focused on New York, though, Mm -hmm. but the role that the numbers played in the community. Do you know anything? Like, can you talk about how were the numbers drawn? Do you remember any of that? Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Tell everybody. It's, it's fascinating. Well, the, the numbers were selected by the amount of money that was bet in a particular race, uh, some horse race in some other area. And that's how the number was drawn. So the number of the horse that crossed the line. No, right? it was the, the amount of money that oh, was Oh, the bet. amount of money. However big the so pot if it was. So if there was $7,422 bet, then the number would be 422 Gotcha. Gotcha. And so what happened to that family business when the state took it over or disallowed it? By that time, my grandparents were of an age to to retire, really. But that money sent my mother to Smith College. Wow. 
and then and then into a world of politics. She was the first African American in the Foreign Service. So what role? She was. We worked at the consulate. She worked in the consulate in Venezuela. So I lived there for a little while when I was a little girl. Wow, that's incredible. Did you move a lot, or was that? No, we did Venezuela, and then she came back and was posted and took positions with the state of Michigan and then the city of Detroit. So, yeah. So what role growing up for you or in the family context did sort of art and culture play? Was there an awareness? Was it part of your household? Always. Yeah. Always. From little bitty girl in dance class to going with my mother to art galleries. And while she pondered, should I buy this painting or should I buy that table and chairs for the living room? I was like, there'll be tables and chairs. Mama, buy the painting. (laughs) So it was that kind of relationship always. You mentioned that you had other family members that were in the nightlife business. Like, were you around that as a child? Were you aware of it? Very, very tangentially. Again, that was two generations up for Mm me. So, no. Not family lore or anything like that? No. uh -uh. Just the ability to be present when things began to change. Like, my company was uh, providing all the entertainment and production services for the MGM Grand Casino when it first opened. So it was kind of this surrealistic experience to stand at the top of the escalator at MGM Grand when they first opened their doors to permit legal casino gaming. The ultimate numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, to be part of this industry again somehow. Yeah. yeah was... And again, the, the, the parallel history of Detroit. I mean, a hundred and some odd years is uh, its quite a trajectory in that city. You, your, you and your family saw a lot. Yes. What was the Detroit of your childhood and young adult life? Well, I grew up when Motown was on the ascension, right? And like, the Four Tops lived down the, down the block, and it just the Gordys lived about a mile away. And so all of that music that was happening, all the Motown Review that you could go to, and I guess that's really probably where I got hooked, right? Yeah. Somehow I always wound up getting into a seat in the first three rows. How do we do that, right? <laughs> but you could pay a dollar and stay and see five shows. Yeah. And I did. Where did you get the bug for putting on events? You know, I think it did start with the Motown Review and, yeah. and going to those events. They were major in Detroit. But also, uh, I did my first event when I was in college. And it was a tribute to a playwright, Ron Milner. Mm-hmm. And from there, I've been doing events ever since. What was that first event? You said like, it was, what, it was, what was a, the program. What what was it? There was music and spoken word, and it was a, to honor someone who had set some box office records as a playwright from Detroit. So yeah. that's what that happened. But then I've done plays as well as and dance and music. So. And what were you doing in college? I was studying communications and political science. Wow. And what did that mean back then? Like, what were you actually doing? Well, I was learning television production and audio production and those, those fundamentals, the, the tenets of those that carry through to this day. And whatever the box is, it's the same process one way or the other. And then political science. So for me, the arts are a means of communication, whichever discipline you're talking about. It's, it is about communicating. So I find that the, the background in, in that, you know, followed through and it made sense. Yeah. yeah. And political science. Well, like here we are at Neva, right? <laughs> That's right. And it's we're like, going to get to that. Yes. Get to that. Tell me a little bit more though, about the period of time 
between your service in Detroit in the political world and when you left school, what was the beginning of your career? What were you doing initially? The first event that I did coming out of college was another tribute, but it was to Paul Robeson mm-hmm. to celebrate his 80th, what would have been his 80th birthday, and to, to learn more about art and politics. Paul Robeson is a case study in what an artist can do and what can sometimes happen to an artist. And I don't know how many people know that story. Feel free. He was a phenomenal vocalist, tremendous voice, and wound up traveling the world as a very celebrated singer, but he was also a political activist. And ultimately, the United States government took his passport, so he could not travel. And during the, the whole McCarthy era, and shut down his career. So he was only able to to survive or to make a living for his family by churches that would host him yeah. in different cities across the country. He did a, a very famous concert up on Peekskill, New York, so that people from across the border in Canada could come and hear him. Phenomenal voice. It just Google him, listen to a little bit of the, the voice. It's amazing, yeah. captivating. What was the uh, legal pretense for taking the passport, do you know? Uh, that he was communist. Communist, yeah, that era, so the 50s, essentially. Yeah. And again, what was that What was that event? What were you doing? Well, it was a tribute to him. There were readings and music again. Uh, Detroit was a, a venue, a city that had a big history of supporting Paul Robeson and supporting other political activists. The labor movement in Detroit spawned that and continued almost to this day. For example, Maurice Bishop, who was um, president of an island called Grenada, came to Detroit to ask for political help and to help try and prevent the United States from invading Grenada. Mm -hmm. The United States did invade Grenada, but the fact that he came to Detroit was kind of indicative of, of the role of that city in supporting indigenous populations and uh, freedom of speech. How did the amphitheater come to be? And what I didn't realize as I was sort of rolling back through your history was you were th- you were there at the beginning of the amphitheater. Like, were you were you part of the force to make it happen? No, that was Mayor Coleman Young and another group of people within city government that were very very active in seeing that it happened. But originally the land was owned by the state of Michigan and it was given to the city of Detroit. And what he wanted, what he envisioned was an amphitheater that would be the rival of Pine Knob at that time. So Mm -hmm. some people know Pine Knob. um, It's always in the top grossing amphitheaters in the world. Uh, It's 15,000 seat capacity. And he wanted a Pine Knob, quote unquote, in Detroit the land wouldn't allow for that scale. But we are at 6,000, and it backs onto the Detroit River. And yeah, I did the first three years of programming there then and uh, established Wednesday Night Jazz Series that's been going on since the 80s. What was the first event you did there? Oh, my goodness. I remember a lot of the names that were in that first season, but it was Wynton Marcellus, um, Diane Reeves, Ornette Coleman. Wow. Oh, and, and uh, Carmen McRae. did Carmen McRae, and that was the first one when it was still just a hill. And we drew 6,000 people, and it was raining. 
And, and I had a grand piano. I was like, do I take it out of the truck? Do I not take it out of the truck? When do I take it out of the truck? So you call the airport and say, is the rain going to stop? When is the rain going to stop? And they told me. So when the rain stopped, I put the grand piano on the stage, and we did Carmen McRae while people had been waiting, sitting on the grass with umbrellas. Wow. And the mayor said, I think we need to improve this venue. And so now we have a canopy that covers 5,000 people. What's the significance of that venue in the community? What role does it play? It really is the heartbeat in a lot of ways of what happens in the city of Detroit over the course of the summer. It's a place for for great music. Again, the Wednesday nights are a tradition in Detroit. We put those tickets on sale on Black Friday after Thanksgiving. We put those tickets on sale and people line up from the night before and spend the night in front of our box office, and they don't even know what we're going to present that year. It's humbling that people care that much and trust that much that, I mean, they spend the night, and it's cold. It's Detroit cold. It's just Detroit cold. And when we (laughs) finally opened the, the full box office in the spring, I mean, it was snowy, and people were in line all day. It's humbling yeah. that what you do means that much to people. Yeah. And that's the power of, of music. Yeah. And when do you actually unveil the lineup? How far in time between when those tickets are bought and when you actually tell people who they're going to see? April. So it's a lot for the community. It's a it lot. a lot. Yeah. What was the... So was it about economic development? Was that the original vision for having the amphitheater downtown? Like, was it, it a was commitment that. to arts? Would, it was that, but it was also reclaiming the Detroit Riverfront. Just as we are here in Cleveland, the, the waterfront was industrial. So it was one of three linked riverfront parks that began to create access to the water for people. And now it's, it's part of or along the Detroit Riverwalk, which is the top such riverwalk in the country. What have the last 10 years in Detroit been like? Well, I mean, we've all been through a lot, right? I go back to like what happened in in 2008, 2009, Mm -hmm. which is really the last time we saw financial catastrophe, right? That, I think, was a major turning point, not only for us as a company, and just because we're talking music business, right? We were in mid-season when Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went down and people stopped spending money immediately. Yeah. But we had already contracted with all these artists and had tickets on sale and we had to carry through with that season. But in early August, we're mid season and we lost a ton of money and had to build back from that. But the same thing happened to the city because it was the subprime mortgage situation. And so Detroit, that had been such a mecca for home ownership, beautiful home stock, brick, spacious, land. It, it's like a war zone that we went through during that period of time because so many homes were lost yeah. and then abandoned. And then it devastated the city. So in trying to come back from that, it was a long haul. And people were doing well and, you know, the, the city government was beginning to rebuild and focus on what was happening in the neighborhoods. And then, of course, here comes the pandemic. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So this concert venue also became, uh, we, we did graduations there, but we also did funerals because you couldn't gather at churches or at funeral homes. So we did funerals. We did big funerals in the amphitheater. Is the city more resilient now as we're heading into sort of now another period of uncertainty, economic uncertainty? What's, what's your prognosis for Detroit? It's my hope that the resilience that the city has demonstrated, the work ethic that was spawned, if you will, from the factories in Detroit, and that's the same work ethic that went into building Motown, yeah. right, or to building music programs in the schools. This was not leisure. This was work. That that spirit will be revived and continue, and that it's being passed from generation to generation. I think that's the most important thing. We do have a strong legacy in Detroit, and to see that brought forward is is essential to the future of our city. We'll be right back with more of my discussion with Shahida Mausi after this break. And now, back to my discussion with Shahida Mausi. There's a word that I read associated with you many times as I was sort of digging into your background and reading other interviews, and it seems like it's a good word for the city as well, which is hustle. That you, You're known for your hustle, and it sounds like Detroit needs to be known for its hustle. That's what's gotten it through. What does hustle mean to you? Overcoming. Whatever's in front of you, keep going, right? I think that the the climate contributes to that, right? If you grew up in a cold weather climate, to just get out your door and get to wherever you're going, you've got to go over something. You've got to go through some things, right? And you have to have the determination to do that. And I think that builds... It builds character, and it, if you've got to go, you've got to go. Yeah. And so I think that's yeah, it's just part of what we do in the, in the city. Just doing what needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about why everybody's gathered here, if we can. What, is, what does it mean to you, at any level, to be an independent? For me, it is freedom. It means that I have the ability to, to dream and to see that dream become a reality because I decide it's going to be, because I can figure out how to get that done. That's what makes it fun every day still after all these years, right? Like I did an event with Deepak Chopra and Indy Ari. Well, they'd never met, so to introduce the two of them was great, but he did a talk and she did a performance, and so we called it Music and Mastery. You know, we can, I can dream up things and do things like that. It, we're going to do something... And I probably, I don't know if I can tell this yet. I'm going to tell this. Um, (laughs) We're working with an organization called the Neighborhood Services Organization, which is a major nonprofit. And maybe this is something that, that some of the audience may find useful in some way. And we're creating a shelter, if you will. For, for musicians and for artists, a place where the creative community can get housing and also other services while also being able to do their art, right? Where, where there's a piano and where there's an easel and, and where that form of expression is allowed and encouraged because it's part of the healing process. How many of us have known artists with, that struggle with mental health issues? And how many of them have wound up homeless at one time or another? So that house now exists, and we're going to 
create uh, a concert called Concert of Hope that will help to fund that initiative going forward and support healing in our community for artists who help to heal us. Where does that impulse come from? Why do you why do you do that? You don't need to do that. You don't have to do that. Because it's a need and it's something that I've seen and experienced. I mean, I, how many artists? I mean, we all have had experiences with artists backstage and you know this person is in need of help, right? Or for example, Kim who has been homeless and is now a world-celebrated great artist, but he was homeless in the city of Detroit, living in a shelter. It's part of our community, and we are citizens of the community. So why not? If, if you see it and you can do it, I, it was something I always wanted to see happen, but I didn't have the money to do that, right, or that expertise. But when I said that that was a need to the right person, she said, Oh, we've got a house. We can do that. We've got the service providers. We can do that. We can dedicate this to artists. And it it made me cry. Can you elaborate a little more then on what what types of roles, beyond producing great events, beyond just the uplift that a community gets from having a night out or having arts come to their town, how do you see the role of an independent producer, presenter, venue in the community. You know, you talked about the things you did during the pandemic. I mean, hosting funerals, that's, there was a need, I guess. How important to the fabric of the community are the people here and what they do beyond just providing entertainment? Being part of the community, being a living, breathing part, and knowing your community is quite different than being a corporate entity that is distant from the people that you're trying to serve, right? It's, it's not cookie cutter. It's, it's indigenous and it, and it grows. But, but again, to, to be of the community, who else knows it better? Yeah. Right? yeah. And what do you think the opportunities are going to be over the next X months or years as we're facing, again, a lot of uncertainty in our communities what types of things do you think can be done? Well, I think you can't unring the bell. Niva was the bell, right? This, this gathering is historic. It's important. And we're never going to not know each other again, right? We're never going to be in a position where we don't know who else to call who might have some insight on what we're trying to do. This gathering, this group of people, of independent, committed individuals with a voice now and the ability to, to have discourse and is just a phenomenal new wave in this country. And I don't think it's going to go away. I think it's something that, that we're blessed to have and we'll get stronger. Your point about we're never going to not know each other again is interesting. I can remember some of the early conversations when the organization was first formed and people saying just that, like they were always so busy with with the grind and with the hustle and with the booking and getting the roof fixed and all the stuff, keeping staff, that they never really talked to their colleagues except maybe once or twice a year at a convention or something. There There was no time and impetus to do that. 
you sort of knew you were part of a community, but you didn't really feel that there was that community everywhere. You didn't know what was going on in Greensboro or right. wherever else. And I wonder, what ramifications does that have for you day to day? Like, do you, do you feel it? Is it inspirational? Does it, like, how do you leverage that? Well, one of the things that, that we did during the uh, maddening days of 2020 was we began to talk with other black promoters across the country. And actually, we wound up forming an organization called the Black Promoters Collective. And this year, launched the two of the top 10, according to Polestar, tours of the country. So we're now doing things nationally. With That tour was New Edition and Charlie Wilson and Jodeci. And the other one was Maxwell and Anthony Hamilton. And we're, we've gone on sale now with Mary J. Blige. But we're also doing things with a thing called Real Talk Drives Real Change in Washington, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and Houston, bringing panelists together to talk about significant issues, including mental health, social justice, education, and economic development, along with musicians. So kind of piggybacking on what we started with music and mastery. Deepak Chopra and NDRE, and now doing that along specific issues. Were you aware of the breadth and depth of talent out there in the black promoting community, or did it take the collective to to raise your awareness around that? No, we knew. There, There were legends, but we're stronger together. No one of us could have gotten the deal done to do Mary J. Blige on tour, right? But together we could. And we did, you know, 36 cities with New Edition and astonished the industry because that just never happened before. And the kind of numbers that we did was part of of what this group is like. We know how to promote in our communities all across this country now. So we can take this force that is NIVA and move artists through smaller venues and feed the larger industry, right? Because if we don't have artists beginning in small clubs and being nurtured there, they're never going to reach the the ability to do arena tours. And that pipeline is important and it's something that working with artists and helping them to understand the importance of working with independents all the way up that food chain and creating that food chain is something that we can do. I didn't really want to talk about the pandemic, but it's a disservice not to at least a little bit. And I'm curious as to how how the pandemic changed your thinking really specifically about your business and, and your business's role in the community. What Did you learn anything that you didn't know before? I'm sure I must have, but it was really hard. We did so many jobs yeah. because we didn't have staff, but we we stayed open. As so many people did, some people didn't, some people couldn't. But as an outdoor venue, we we had a capacity of 6,000, but the pandemic said we could only have 100 people. It's an expensive ticket. So we did 100 people because if that's all we could serve, then that's what we would do. And you you couldn't hire people last year at all. Nobody was at work, right? So thank goodness I have 12 grandkids. I broke labor laws. They worked. <laughs> we'll edit that out if we have to. Yeah, well, you know. No evidence. <laughs> I guess if you don't pay them, there's no evidence. <laughs> no, no paper trail. 
So what does it look like when there's 100 people? Like, how do you do it? Is it is it you're out there doing work you haven't done in 20 years? Or how do you serve 100 people? You set up tables and a sound system, and you, social, you, you measure the distance between chairs and tables. And nine acres, you can do 100 people. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... You just do it, you yeah. know? It was. But how did you do it economically? Was it we're going to bite the bullet and invest in this and lose a little money? or? We, yeah, we lost some money. But people, people cared. If only 100 of us can get in, then that's what we're doing. Uh, we did some of it with live stream music so that if you weren't there, you could hear it. It was a DJ. We couldn't do live music. But, you know, we, we serve the community. It's what we're there to do. Yeah. You know, it's entrusted to us, so we use it. Yeah. And... Did you what 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 were the implications of doing that? Where did it contribute to the health of the community? Where people I think it did. You know, what did you get back? I think the mental health of the community was was important. But I also had the fire marshal coming through with members of the CDC to see if I was doing this in compliance with the regulations. It was like really, hundred people. Okay, come on, let me show you. Yeah, <laughs> it was the regulatory aspects of it were were real. Were real. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I can remember talking to um, to chefs who are caterers, and they say, you know, it's so much easier to do a 500-person wedding than it is to do a six-person dinner party. Uh, and I guess when you get used to scale, it's very hard to strip it back down. It's a different... No, it's the same, it's the same work that you're doing, whether it's a small piece or a big piece. The question is whether you have some other hands to help do it. But, you know, no, I was setting up tables and stretching tablecloths and doing, doing yeah. whatever was needed. Did you find any opportunity in the pandemic or are there new opportunities as you're coming out of the pandemic that you might not have seen before? I think really never is is what came out of it. Working together with other people, pulling together the Black Promoters Collective, working on those things. Those are major tangible outcomes that that was the upside of the pandemic for us. Yeah. And also giving my children, my grandchildren, the opportunity to learn to work together. Tell me a little bit about your family and the business. So how does it work in terms of, not the labor laws, I'm not, we don't have to talk about that. How does it work in terms of the interest and the aptitude? Is it you're coming to work in the business or is it you have to fight your way in? You know, how does, what's that dynamic? Well, when I was at the Arts Council or all those things, I was um, a single mother. So my four sons had to go where I went, right? If we were doing lit drops for politicians or promoting a show or whatever, they were right there, right? When we started working with what was then Shane Park, my eldest son was picking up the trash. They've always been with me as I've moved through this career. When I did Mandela at Tiger Stadium, they were, they were there. And my second son, I sent him to go get something and before he could get back in, the Mandelas had come and they locked down the stadium, so he got left out on the street. Um, but it's been that. They, they're always been a part of, of what we do. I sent a son to deliver something to an ad agency, and he came back with a job. And now he lives in New York and he works in an ad agency. But he's still part of the business because he helps with the marketing and brings New York there. One son's been on tour all around the world as a tour manager. Another lives in North Carolina as festivals and all those kinds of things. And I'm just for laughs and giggles. So my four sons work in the business all the time. But so does my first husband. He was production manager for us for years. And he's still in the business? He's retired now, but he's still there. Yeah. Wow. And uh, 
I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> How did that go? You know, it was a little rocky at first, but it was. It's been fine. It's it's been a good experience for. Um, you know, he had some expertise, and he he brought it and, and shared and uh, supported his children and his ex wife in in a way that he could when that was possible. So you, he's like a brother. Yeah, I understand that. What are some of your hopes and aspirations for this organization going forward? What would you like to see this be or become? I want to do more with the organization. I really do want to focus on how we move talent through this network that exists. How do we do that? What are we doing in terms of artist development through NEVA? Because this is the network. This is the food chain that we can uh, strengthen. I think it's important. What we have in all of these spaces are stages, which are means of distribution. Stages allow us to present thought. That's what artists do. So our means of communication, our means of distribution of product exist in this group. And I think to look at it from that perspective of we have an opportunity, we have a responsibility, we have an impact all across this country and can have an even greater impact if we focus and choose what it is that we want to do. And what role does the political play in that? I think the the ability for artists to speak, the role of artists is disrupting, generally speaking. But to allow for that is important to this country. It's important to this world, from my perspective at least. To not be homogenized, to not be afraid to speak, to not be afraid to hear and to think and to disagree or agree, but to have that opportunity exist in, in small spaces all across this country now. And, and we know it, and, and to the extent that we use it wisely, I think it's important. How do you think about the future and, I, and, and different futures? How do you think about the future the next 12 to 48 months? It feels like we're at an important moment, at an inflection point, economically, politically. What do you feel inside about that? I think it's important that we talk to each other. The creation of NIVA got us out of our silos in one way, in terms of our business models. We're out of our silos. But I think it's important that we stay out of our silos and that we engage people and talk with people, talk with each other. You know, there was a time in this country when you, when you were afraid to talk, right? Afraid to share an opinion that was not widely held. I think it's important that we do that. And, and I think that our country needs more dialogue across lines. There are lots of, of people here who have different perspectives, but we're here for a business model. But as a social model, I think it's also important that we just talk with each other. You know, the, the media is, they're, they're in their silos now. And there are key pieces of information that are not shared now the way they used to be when there were only three media outlets and everybody watched the same stuff and you at least knew what somebody else was thinking. We're, we're so segmentized that we don't know what someone else is experiencing. And I think it's important that we do. What is next for you? 
what mountains are left to climb? What what aspirations do you have? Do you think that way? Do you have a list? Yeah. Okay, so I love being in the house. I'm, I'm a promoter, but I love being the house, right? Being the house is the best, as far as I'm concerned. But I also want to... <laughs> yeah, well, it's good. But I also... I still want to do... Um, I'd like to do events overseas. Yeah. I haven't done that yet. Done things now in other in other parts of the United States, but I haven't done anything overseas. I want to do that. What's that going to look like? What's that in your mind? What's that manifestation? Like where, who, when? Probably Africa, Nigeria, South Africa. Looked at doing some things in Botswana. Um, yeah, I want to do Africa. What will you take there, or what will you package there? Well, you know, American music is popular and you know we're hearing more african music now we share is there a cultural exchange opportunity oh i'm sure there probably is we did a lot of that with people coming here right and i've presented south african dance and nigerian writers and all kinds of folks on this side particularly during the fight against apartheid we developed really close relationships so now the opportunity to go in the other direction, I think I'm going to go and, and have those kind of conversations probably in December, but that's, that's one of my dreams. So you pick something and it's like, I'm going to do that Yeah, and yeah. figure out how to do it. If you don't mind me asking, what is, your, what is your model for manifesting your dreams? Are you the kind of person that writes something down and says, I'm going to do this in the next five to ten years, and then you go just, do you have to say it out loud? Like, what's... How do you operate? Well, I have said things. I don't tend to write things. I need to be more intentional about it. But like the having the opportunity to manage and operate the Aretha Franklin Amphitheater, I was walking down the street, and I was like, I want that. And the person I was walking with said, oh, leave that to the young people. You don't need to do that. I said, yeah, but I want that. I was asleep when the call came to put in the RFP, but it came. So I think you don't want to overwater the plant, if you will, right? But you want to plant the seeds and just do give it sunlight and water, and things happen. Were you literally asleep or metaphorically asleep? I was really literally <laughs> Sunday morning, gone. Who puts out an RFP on a Sunday morning? Good hey, that's Lord. when the, the word came out. So. Yeah. Are you a music fan still? Yes, I am, but I'm also mindful of... I mean, when your avocation becomes your vocation. Yeah. So when you when it's you lose to, a hobby. Yeah. 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 You can't go to a show and not count the seats and look at the parking lots and the production and you know all of that. Yeah, you you lose that that part of it. It has to be a really really special event like going to see Michelle and Diego Cello that will get you out of your um, professional head. Do you ever go to anybody else's events just as a civilian? Figure out a way to buy a ticket, go stand in line, go do the thing? See, buying a ticket. Yeah, good luck <laughs> figuring out how to. Yes, I did. We went to see Johnny Mathis just because we could, right? It, that's a legacy. He's yeah. still he still it was still great. Of course. And that was an experience unlike, you know, what we do on a daily basis, you know. Yeah, I, I still do that. I went to see um, James Taylor. Yeah, I'm going to do that just because I can. Those special events with the uh, one day, God willing, I'm going to get to see Barbara Streisand. I hope. 
Yeah, maybe. And I, I'm probably going to have to buy that ticket. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to more, take out another mortgage. Yeah, it could happen. <laughs> Good on her. When you go home tonight or this weekend or at the end of a long day or a long week or whatever it is, what's your music comfort food? Mm, more African music, I think. Yeah. Rhythmic, where, the, where I don't understand the language, and that's fine. I just need the, the space, the feel, the rhythm. I would love to talk more about that with you, but I, I was given the signal that our time is winding down. There's so much more I'd love to explore, and I'm going to probably rope you in on that another time. But thank you so much for getting up early and coming <laughs> over here and, and making time to do this. It's, it's really a pleasure to talk with you, and thank you so much. It's a pleasure getting to know you a little bit as well. I have lots of questions for you, so I can well, do you the know, interview I'll do your time. podcast. Okay. <laughs> we'll get you started. Deal. <laughs> Shahida Mausi. Thank you so much, Shahida Mausi, and everyone involved with Neva 22. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson and theme music by Q Burns Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, Please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.